Good morning to you. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside, and it is great to have you for week three of Advent. We're delighted. Maybe you are here for the first time uh, because you came to Magi this weekend. You heard the invitation to come to church, and now you're here. If that's you, we are overwhelmingly glad about that. So we hope that you feel quite welcome to get you up to speed. Since Thanksgiving, we have been in a series called Kingly Visions, all about the visions that God gave the prophets of Jesus hundreds of years before he showed up on the scene. And we're going to get to that, but before we do, one very important preliminary matter. Stockings. Stockings. Do you open them before all the presents or after? Families have broken up on that rock. So here's what I want you to do. Stand up. Find somebody you don't know, maybe somebody you haven't seen for a while, and I want you to have this discussion. Do you open the stockings before or after and why? When I heard from my sister-in-law, Becky, who I love, and has just been this absolutely magnificent wife for my twin brother, Darren, but when I heard that her family, the Proctors, opened their stockings after the big present hoard, I was scandalized, and I almost could not accept her as my sister. I've gotten over it over many, many years, but anyway, so now you know who you can be friends with at Hillside and who you can't, now that that's settled. But anyway, we have been in a series called Kingly Visions, and again, in this series, we are looking at visions of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gave ancient prophets real people a hundred, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And to digress for a moment, one of the reasons that I am a Christian, one of the reasons that I am convinced of the particular truth of Christianity over and above the sheer magnificence of Jesus's life, which for me is sufficient evidence to confirm him as son of God. But one of the main support beams of my faith is the existence and the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies. You see, the Bible in the Old Testament is replete with images and concepts and symbols and, yes, predictions uh, often shadowy in their own context, but which brought together like pieces of a puzzle give us a picture of Jesus. And I have no explanation for this other than that these words are inspired. And Jesus really is the Son of God. In fact, here's a helpful Bible reading practice, maybe something that you can do if you join in with Beth Aylard and her group of people who are going to read the whole Bible in the year 2022. Here's something you can do. Every time when you're reading in the Old Testament, you read something that makes uh, kind of a bell in your mind that sounds like a Jesus bell, write the letter P next to the verse. My Bible, the Bible that I mark up with all sorts of notes in the Old Testament is just full of letter P's, little uh, intimations, 
predictions, suggestions of Jesus. For instance, I've got a letter P next to this verse, Isaiah 66, and it goes this way. A multitude of camels shall come over you. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. What future event does that seem to announce? For some reason, I have that story on my mind this weekend. I bet you do too. The Magi, of course. Well, it's amazing what you see when you line up all those verses that have a little P next to them. You see Jesus of Nazareth. It's remarkable. You see it at the individual level with individual verses, and you also see Jesus in the aggregate, and you could kind of describe it this way. It's a little like one of those mini picture mosaics that you see from time to time where each little tile making up the big mosaic is its own picture. And it's pretty remarkable that the Old Testament works that way. It really does. But to return to the larger point, by gazing deeply into these ancient kingly visions of Jesus, you know what we get? We get a picture of who Jesus, the reigning king over all, is for us today, living right where we are. So while you're finding the little book of Zephaniah in your own Bible, if you brought it with you today, let me quickly say, I think that you're going to be glad that you came this morning. I really do. And that's because the kingly vision that we get to gaze into this morning as the Hillside family is so beautiful. It's so stirring. It's so comforting. It's some biblical huga. Anyone know that term? <laughs> huga? I'm sorry to, to use a Danish term to a bunch of uh, formerly Swedish people, or at least some of you. But uh, huga is the Danish term, the Danish idea for being consciously cozy. Well, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17 is the biblical equivalent of a crackling fire and warm cider and cozy socks. It's huga. And don't we all need a little bit of comfort right now? I think we really do. You know, with the pandemic lingering on, which variant are we on now? Can't even keep them all straight. Smash and grab robberies <laughs> a mile from here in our own downtown of Walnut Creek and elsewhere, and even a baseball lockout. Things are getting serious now, aren't they? A lot of troubling news coming into our feed. So let's, this morning, let's drink from the warm mug of biblical comfort. And that's what we have in Zephaniah 3. Let me read it to you. It goes this way. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you 
with loud singing. I mean, what a vision. Here the ancient prophet paints a picture of the almighty God himself in the midst of his people, comforting them and even singing over them. Let this sink in. God himself, the three-in-one God from all eternity who made everything, the God who sometimes in our experience feels far away, the God who sometimes seems a little scary in the Old Testament, this God, mighty and matchless, surrounding and surrounded by his people and even serenading them. And friends, as Christians, we are absolutely convinced that this is not just poetry. It's not just wishful thinking. This is true. This vision is a true picture of reality post the life of Jesus, which began, strangely enough, in a manger. Well, what does this Christmas gift of a mighty king in our midst really mean? The prophet tells us. We don't have to be too clever. He tells us what it means, and he repeats himself so so that we don't miss it. Listen to verse 15 again. It says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, and then get this, you shall never again fear evil. And friends, and again, this is our big idea of the morning. This is what I want you to walk away with. A mighty king in our midst means the end of enslaving fear. And let me say it again. A mighty king in our midst, which is what Christmas is, means the end of enslaving fear and three fears in particular. Let's walk right through them. First, the fear of of designless disaster. Now, verse 15 has the word evil. So why do I say disaster? Because the Hebrew word here is ra, which in this context has the sense of personally experienced evil, not just evil in the abstract, but the kind of evil that we experience personally, which is why some versions of this verse translate verse 15 this way, you will no longer fear disaster. And what an amazing claim that really is. People who have been reconciled to God in Christ, who have received his forgiveness, who have joined his family, and who now live under his powerful protection, no longer fear disaster. Now, I know what you're already thinking. You know, humbug. Christians experience disaster all the time. They get cancer, their houses get wiped away by tornadoes like those dear people in Kentucky. They lose their jobs, their kids get addicted, they get kidnapped. Just think about those missionaries in Haiti a few weeks ago, not far from the Dominican Republic, which is a a country that is deep in the heart of Hillside. In fact, speaking of the Dominican Republic, we are going on a short-term trip to the Dominican Republic in February. You're thinking, you can't be serious. I'm absolutely serious. More on that next month. But to return to our main thread, yes, of course, Christians experience disaster. But here's the thing. If we think that that sober reality shatters 
the truth of this kingly vision, you know what? We're actually not reading carefully enough. The passage says that the mighty God in our midst means that we don't have to fear disaster. We don't have to fear evil. Not that we won't occasionally be touched by it. In other words, no random evil, no designless disaster can crash through our windshields. It can't happen. And that's because God is near and watchful. And because of his vigilance, the only evil, the only disaster that can possibly touch us is evil that passes through his own loving hands and evil that forms a part of his ultimate plan for our good and for a full planetary makeover where evil will be no more. And recently I saw this grim captionless cartoon that that struck me as a powerful picture of how many people imagine God. You can see it up on the screen and it's in your notes as well. It shows God standing next to this frowning angel roasting a marshmallow over a smoldering earth. And of course, there is no caption necessary, right? The message is clear. God is far away and he doesn't care. You know, the message of the Bible, the truth is the precise opposite. God in Christ has come near and by virtue of his death and resurrection is near to us, his people, in a brand new and permanent way. And this truth at the heart of this kingly vision, that we don't need to fear disaster, that no random evil can land on our lawns like an alien ship, it changes everything. And if absorbed into our minds through prayer and reflection, or through dialogue with a spiritual director, if you happen to have one, it results in new freedom. And on the one hand, freedom to keep living life, to keep living. And this is not to say that with a mighty king in our midst, we're reckless. Rather, it means that as long as we are observing basic wisdom, a mighty king in our midst means that we can go out into the world and live life to the full. In any set of circumstances, we can take a trip. We can tell the truth. We can try something new, maybe scuba lessons in the spring. And there's even more to it than that. The reality of a mighty king in our midst, you know what it does? It unleashes courage and confidence for ministry for the work of the Lord. In fact, I've got to think that this no fear of random evil Christmas gift right at the heart of this kingly vision has got to be one of the, you could say, lines of code in Dave Eubanks' spiritual operating system. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Anyone ever heard of Dave Eubanks? This guy is remarkable. Dave Eubanks is a former Green Beret captain. And He's a Jesus follower. And by the way, Dave Eubanks demonstrates that if you have a military background, you've got some skills, leadership and otherwise, that can be of great value 
to God's mission. But anyway, Dave Eubanks, after graduating from Fuller Seminary, makes me proud, okay, and serving as a missionary in Burma, another country close to the hillside heart, Dave Eubanks founded this absolutely remarkable human rights organization called the Free Burma Rangers. And the purpose of Free Burma Rangers is in Jesus' name and in Jesus' very distinct love your enemy style is to go into conflict zones and to bring whatever kind of practical help suffering distressed people need even when the bullets are flying. And there's this famous video, you can find it on YouTube, of Dave Eubanks dashing into a firefight and rescuing a tiny Iraqi girl. Now, you might think, oh, I know this guy. This is uh, a wild-eyed Rambo type. But when you watch the documentary that was just made of his life, it's available on Amazon Prime, you realize nothing could be further from the truth. That's not this guy at all. And though confident, certainly he's a self-effacing father and husband, and his willingness to put his life on the line for vulnerable people is not bravado at all. It's courage. And it's courage that grows from his awareness of a mighty king in our midst. And I don't think there's anything that the world needs more from us right now, the people of God, Jesus' followers, than courage. Courage to tell the truth. Courage to proclaim and embody and commend the very distinct way of Jesus, which is a peaceable way and a truthful way. And not only that, but courage to build what needs to be built to demonstrate that way. And here's the point. That courage bubbles up in a brain that is drenched with the reality at the center of this vision that since Christmas, there is a mighty God in our midst and everything is different. What's the second enslaving fear from which the mighty king in our midst frees us? I think is very interesting. The fear of continuous mental tumult. And what I mean by that is the fear that whatever mental or emotional tumult we're experiencing, it's the fear that it will always be there, a permanent part of our lives from which we can expect no improvement. Well, you know what? The kingly vision right here in Zephaniah, it kicks that fear to the curb because the prophet says that God in Christ will, verse 17 again, rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. You might have heard of this book. Several years ago, a famous academic psychologist named K. Redfield Jameson wrote a memoir in which she describes her experience as having mental illness as an unquiet mind. Here we have a promise of God in Christ quieting the minds of his children. And what good news this is. And what good news, news this is for our youth. You know, as you know, and I've mentioned this before several times over the last few months, the youth in our country and our community are experiencing just devastating levels of emotional 
and mental distress. In fact, just last week, you might have seen this, the Surgeon General released an advisory on the contemporary youth mental health crisis, and they don't do this every week. I read it. Very, very good. Very helpful. This is another reason why Hillside simply must become a world-class spiritual health center for kids and youth. We must do this. And I'm determined to work with us all to make that happen. Something we've got to build together. But again, our kids are drowning in emotional and mental uh, distress. And here's the thing. The Surgeon General says this in his report. They were so before the pandemic. (laughs) The pandemic has just made things worse. And I bring this up to make the point that the promise that God cares about our troubled emotions, all of us, all of us, not just kids, and wills to still our minds like Jesus stilled the raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. This is incredible news and so fitting for the moment that we're in right now. And it's also, I think this is really important. It's an implicit invitation to avail ourselves of every wise remedy for emotional turmoil that God has made available to us. Because you know what? God works through it all. God works through therapy. God works through medicine. God works through spiritual direction. God works through new habit formation in the realm of exercise and sleep and the responsible use of technology. And by the way, I know this personally. I know that God employs all sorts of methods for quieting our noisy minds. Quick story. When I was 27 years old, at the end of my uh, second year of law school, I I don't know how else to put it, I just had a real emotional meltdown involving all sorts of troubling, obsessive thoughts. And when these obsessive thoughts came over me like a, a flood, right before finals, I was so ashamed and embarrassed. And I kept saying to myself, me? I'm strong. I mean, not physically. I can't even do one pull-up, okay? But emotionally, I'm strong. I said to myself, I'm not the kind of person who deals with problems like this. And eventually, with the nudging of my parents, I, I got a prescription And I got a therapist for a few months, a therapist, and this was very important to me, who operated out of the same very distinct Christian worldview that I operate out of. And let me tell you, in that season of life, I discovered the power of God to quiet a noisy mind with his love and his healing love flowing through all sorts of different channels. And I'll say this as well. There was a spiritual dimension to my psychological malaise. And in many ways during that very lonely season of life, it was hard. Law school's hard. Pressure cooker season of life, in all sorts of ways, I was living out of step with the Spirit. And so part of my healing involved a return to an ordered spiritual life, an ordered spiritual life that included coming to church, being there with the people of God, 
Spiritual community, consistent sleep, exercise, fun, time with friends, all of that. And there's a tendency in the culture right now to kind of screen off mental health from spiritual health, to make them two distinct categories. And, you know, truthfully, sometimes mental health issues are entirely spiritually and morally neutral. Certainly that's the case part of the time. Other times, however, they intersect and they interact with spiritual issues. And in those cases where a noisy mind has at least some spiritual roots, part of the solution will be spiritual medicine. It was for me. And part of the solution will involve, dare I say, repentance, which is a scary word, but which basically just means this, a practical turn back to God and his revealed purposes for us. And the point, though, is that with this mighty king in our midst, you know what we're freed from? I mean something really good. We are freed from the fear of continuous mental tumult. And some of us think that we are just fated, <laughs> fated to have an unquiet mind, that there is just no possibility of healing. There's, there's no possibility of mental and emotional calm. But again, the vision right here of Zephaniah, it, it, that, that pessimism, it just blows up in the face of this vision. Because the prophet says, the Lord your God is in your midst. He will quiet you with his love. And those words mean something. Final enslaving fear. Christmas gift of a mighty king in our midst frees us from. I think this might, might be my favorite fear, to send up in smoke, all right? And here's what it is, empty exertions. What do I mean by that? Look again at the second clause of verse 16. It says, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And the prophet here is saying something remarkable. I mean remarkable. And something deeply inspiring to every single one of us in this room, people who are watching on the screen at home, who are toiling away at some responsibility that God has given them, but sort of seeing huge or not seeing very dramatic returns. Here the prophet is saying that because the mighty king is now in our midst, we should not let our hands grow weak. In other words, we should not lose heart. We should not lose our commitment to whatever it is that God has called us to. Well, if we think about that, if we are not to lose heart with whatever it is that God has called us to, if we're not to let up on those responsibilities that God has entrusted us to, whether it be parenting or keeping a business going, or staying sober, or this church and our mission, whatever it is, it's got to be for one reason. It's got to be because those tasks are not futile. It must be because they've got some eternal weight of 
glory, which is the logic of the passage. And you know what else? It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in one of the most important and one of the most inspiring and one of the most neglected verses in the entire New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know, there's an old saw that you sometimes hear in church. And it goes like this. There are only two things that will outlast this world, people and the word of God. That's some very stale fruitcake. (laughs) Whoever made up that saying... Whichever pastor should get coal in his stocking. For many reasons. Reasons it would take another sermon to really tease out. Nothing that we plug away at, out of loyalty to Jesus, will ultimately be lost. Nothing. No effort for the king is ever wasted. That's the logic of the bodily resurrection. What we do matters. Our work matters. And whether that's distinctively Christian work, like the kind of service that people around Hillside render to Jesus, you know, scooping ice cream in the Magi uh, palace scene, or organizing backpack drives, or the more general work we do as part of our nine-to-fives, if the work is honorable, it serves some kind of good human purpose, and it's done out of love for Jesus, it counts. It lasts. In fact, this takes a very stretchy imagination to take in, but according to the Apostle Paul, that work, that sweat, that labor, even when we don't see really what's coming from it right now, that stuff becomes part of the new world that we will inherit at the next advent. The ultimate advent when Jesus appears to rule and to reign and to review our lives and to reign with us by his side forever and ever and ever in ages of endless wonder. And this means, this reality of the mighty king in our midst means that none of our exertions are empty. None of it is in vain. None of our labor. What is done for Jesus lasts forever, whether it's making lunch for a testy toddler, we see you mops, moms, hosting a birthday lunch for Hillside Seniors, thank you, Susan Rodriguez. You did such a beautiful job with that lunch. Coaching high school football, bravo, Mike Downing, or pulling weeds around the church. Thank you, Jane and Brad. Because the mighty king is in our midst, it all counts. None of it is wasted, so Hillside, let's not let our hands grow weak. And actually, we're not doing it. Our hands are strong here and pulling off Magi in a grim, dark pandemic year is the proof. Well done. Carol, thanks for writing that beautiful musical. Yeah. What allows our king to be this gracious? 
What allows him to come into our midst forever? I know you know, but we'll say it again, the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus for us, his death and resurrection. You see, it's that event, it's that sacrifice But Zephaniah 3.15 says, it's because of that that the judgments against us are taken away. Our failures are forgotten and forgotten forever. And that means we're free to live creatively, imaginatively, courageously, truthfully, with nothing to fear ever and everything to hope for. That's us. That's the Christmas gift of a mighty king. Let's pray. Father, we want to live this week like what we've learned is true. Because it is true. In your son, on the first Christmas, you came to us. And with the completion of his work, you inhabit your world in a new way. You're in our midst. And now you welcome us to live confidently under your mighty wings. Father, I don't need to say it. The world is grim in many ways, but that doesn't mean the opportunities for living zestfully are zilch. The future is bright, and so help us to live in light of that future as a demonstration of belief in you and as an invitation to others to consider the source of that zest. Thanks for the Magi cast and crew. We pray you'd strengthen them as they finish their own camel journey this afternoon. We love you. We thank you for this great Christmas gift, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.